Bob Blake is a member of the Red Lake Nation tribe and a resident of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. He has a positive, infectious personality, the kind that makes it difficult to imagine his spirits ever get low. But like everyone, of course he's faced hard times. About 10 years ago, Bob's brother passed away, and he ended up becoming a kind of stand-in dad to his brother's kids. This, like, unconditional love came over me to, like, protect them. And I thought to myself, I want to do something, like, tangible to help them. He had an idea of how. A big idea. At the time, it seemed simple enough, but, like, why don't I solve climate change for them, you know? I just started looking at this extractive colonial capitalism predatory system that preys on these, like, communities. And I don't like bullies. And I was just like, you know, something's, someone's got to do something. But beyond that, he didn't quite know what that would mean or even who to ask. Luckily, someone came to him. This imaginary, like, big polar bear. And he's wearing sunglasses. Mm. <laughs> and his name is Solar Bear. And he just started making me, like, do the right thing in all aspects of my life. And I was just like, hey, you, you think we could save the planet? And he's like, yeah, we can save the planet. Solar Bear was like, we got to do something. This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. So Catherine, solar bear, I'm very intrigued. He seems very cool. He is very cool. And we'll be hearing more from solar bear and solar energy entrepreneur Bob Blake later in the episode about the journey that they have been on to build a clean energy workforce for people in his community in Minnesota. Because today, Leah, we are talking about jobs, specifically clean green jobs. We recently did an episode about a clean electricity standard, a piece of the American Jobs Plan, which is now, thankfully, moving along in Congress. And you've been doing amazing work on that, Leah. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Yeah, I love that clean electricity standard. Leah's other great love of her life. <laughs> <laughs> and this week, we want to focus in on another aspect of the American Jobs Plan, where it is focusing on a clean workforce. Specifically, the plan aims to set aside $100 billion for workforce development programs across a wide suite of sectors that include clean energy. And that really comes through in how proponents of President Biden's proposal talk about the clean jobs plan. Yeah, the American Jobs Plan, unsurprisingly given its name, has a lot of money and ideas about how we're going to build this clean, green workforce. It's everything from the Civilian Climate Corps to training people to retrofit buildings and make them clean to, you know, getting EVs built in this country. There's a lot of ideas. And I think that the plan really is about how can we get clean, green manufacturing and installation and workforce in the United States. Exactly. It's going to take many, many, many people doing lots of work to lead us into this next economy. And that means we're going to have to nurture a workforce, invest in it, develop it, 
And to me, the prospect of a big climate jobs boom is incredibly exciting. But how do we make sure it's not just a boom for some people or some communities, but genuinely creates opportunity for everyone in this country? I think that's the top question, Catherine. We have to make sure that everybody is brought along in this clean energy workforce of the future, whether that's communities that have been involved in fossil fuel extraction or communities of color that have been on the front lines of pollution or women and people of color who are traditionally not as employed in these kinds of sectors or, for that matter, unions. You know, we've got higher unionization rates in the extractive economy right now than we do in the clean energy industries. And we've got to fix that. So there are so many pieces we've got to get right as we move to this clean energy economy. I totally agree. And we know that opportunity in workforce development has not always been spread around equally. So that's what we're going to explore today. And I found myself in the context of the original announcement of the American Jobs Plan, really wondering what progress could be made in my home state of Georgia, specifically around clean energy jobs. So I called up one of my favorite climate people right here in Atlanta. So my name is Chandra Farley. I'm the Just Energy Director at Partnership for Southern Equity. We're a racial equity organization based in Atlanta, Georgia. Chandra's organization does a lot of deep work building power among justice organizations and among residents of underserved communities. So not just uh, making sure that resident leaders and frontline grassroots groups have a a seat at the table, but they are actually um, building the table, deciding who needs to be invited um, to to dinner and and setting the menu. A movement led by uh, the people who are first and most impacted by our changing climate, the impacts of that, and rising utility costs. I wanted to know what she thinks of the American Jobs Plan, specifically as it relates to a just energy future. So it's exciting to have this conversation about your work kind of in this context of domestic climate action that just feels like it's worrying in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. And I'm curious what your reaction was to the news from the Biden administration about the American Jobs Plan and and what it proposes to do? So I guess my reaction was, um, okay, yes, and. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think (laughs) a lot of us had a lot of expectations that this is exactly what was supposed to be happening, (laughs) you know, from from my perspective. So it was like, okay, yes, great. Um, Now let's get get to work, right? So Leah, you can hear a bit of skepticism in Chandra's reaction, which I think is rooted in years of work on the ground, frankly feeling frustrated with all of the work that is not getting done. And really the American Jobs Plan is exciting, but only to the extent that it actually delivers jobs, right? To the people who really need them, the people who have been left out of previous waves of economic prosperity, and of course, at the same time that it delivers actual outcomes for the climate. You know, I know Chandra and her work, and I'm a big fan, and she makes a great point here. Everybody, whether it's communities of color, low-income communities, women, 
Everybody needs to be brought along in the clean energy economy, and they need to get a real genuine slice of the pie. Leah, I love how you go all Canadian on genuine. It makes me so happy. Oh, I didn't even know that was a Canadianism pronunciation. <laughs> I think maybe it is. And genuinely, Chandra has watched, as so many of us have, our government come up short, right? Especially when there is a handoff involved, passing funds from the federal government to the state, which is what we could expect from parts of the American Jobs Plan. Because sometimes it's not actually the money that's the problem. We've had money before, you know, re, we, the royal we in, in certain programs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not me. <laughs> um, and we weren't able to get it done, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of the same barriers remain. So there's lots of conversations about, oh, these dollars are going to flow. Okay, well, that's great. But, you know, here in Georgia and, and in other states, it can be a big barrier when those dollars get to the state. If the states don't know where to put the money, where they can put the money, or if there are regulatory barriers in place that just don't account for rooftop solar. If you don't have strong policies or regulations that can support the creation of a rooftop solar market, well, what are you training people for? Do you know what I'm saying? So I think there's some, we've got a whole picture to look at that's the layer underneath the amount of money and the amount of potential jobs. Let's look at Medicaid. We, you know, we have an example of the state flat out refusing to expand, you know, a a program when there's a federal mechanism in place to do so. Let's go ahead and get to work on figuring out what the capacity constraints are and what kind of um, capacity build out we need to be doing in community, but also in the agencies that are going to be receiving this money. So you and Chandra are both seeing this up close and personal in Georgia right now. What are some of the challenges for clean, green jobs you're seeing? Well, we talked a bit about that. And One of the big challenges, of course, is a state legislature that certainly does not have a climate majority, not by a long shot. And lots of folks probably know it's a state legislature that's actually been working to disenfranchise voters who are a part of the climate majority. So that's a big challenge. We have a public service commission, right? Our elected board that oversees utilities in our state, again, not leading the way not by a long shot. And unfortunately, we have the same thing with our governor. So there's just a lack of leadership across state government, even though we have heaps of opportunity for climate solutions to grow jobs and advance equity in Georgia. But we're falling short in some of those key leadership areas. So I hear you on the hurdles. But on the other hand, sometimes I hear that Georgia is a real front runner when it comes to clean energy jobs. Where are they at compared to the rest of the country? Leah, you cannot keep some good Georgians down. We are going (laughs) to do good stuff. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so despite some of the challenges we face, Georgia is actually number nine in the country for installed solar electricity. We've got some incredible electric bus manufacturing in the state and other things, but 
There's also another side of that story in terms of who is the makeup of the workforce. Some recent research that was done by Drawdown Georgia tells us that while the state's workforce is 31% Black overall, the solar workforce is only 10% Black. And similarly, the workforce overall in Georgia is 45% female, but the solar workforce is only 19% female. So it's kind of a snapshot of the challenge that we're dealing with. And we're also one of the worst states for energy burden, especially for low-income households. So there is very real work to do to advance equity and inclusion, both within green jobs, but also to ensure that Georgians can turn on their lights and cool their homes with clean electricity and without breaking the bank. And Chandra put this really well. We need transformational shifts and small steps count, but we've done that, right? (laughs) I mean, we, um, I don't think we are unclear about what we need to do. I think that we just need more civic engagement muscle and political will to move us towards those transformational shifts that we need. I want to just put the proverbial magic wand in your hand. If Georgia wanted (laughs) to make the most of the American Jobs Plan, wanted to make the most of the shifts happening at the federal level to advance climate solutions and jobs and equity here, what would we as a state do to seize that opportunity to its fullest? Honestly, I would start with just creating a fully funded state energy office that had a chief equity officer embedded with within that. And we need a coordinated hub where the community action agencies, the weatherization agencies, we need a space where it all come together to put our strategy together. The clean energy workforce ecosystem in Georgia, like the workforce ecosystem, I think, in general, is very disjointed. And and it shouldn't be. And I feel like, again, that is what some sort of central coordinated task force or funded coordinating staff could help us break through. You know, Georgia loves to talk about being a number one state to do business. I would love us to be proud and always hear our legislators and regulators talk about Georgia is a number one state for an equitable, clean energy economy. I hear Chandra's bold vision for Georgia, and I also hear that she's clear-eyed about some of the big barriers in moving the workforce towards a more equitable place. Yeah, and I walked away from our conversation feeling curious about whether there is such a steep hill to climb in every state. What is it looking like in states that have governments that are already a little more focused on climate action, that understand the clean energy economy has got to be an economy for everyone? Yeah. Are there states that understand the challenge in the way that Chandra does? What states did you have in mind, Catherine? Well, yeah, the first one that popped into my head was actually New Jersey, because in many ways, what's happened in New Jersey kind of parallels the experience of the country nationally. 
right? You had a Republican governor, Chris Christie, not a climate champion, gets replaced by another white guy, but someone who had some big social and economic plans that include climate and include equity. And that, of course, is the current governor of New Jersey, Democrat Phil Murphy. The governor's plan is called a stronger and fairer economy, right? So what does stronger mean? What does fairer mean? Well, everybody and anyone has a seat at the table. So we've been incredibly intentional in our planning and putting where our money, our, the money where our mouths are. That's Diana Gonzalez, Deputy Secretary of Higher Education for the state of New Jersey. She works on academic programming and workforce initiatives, and she's got a particular focus right now on training people for jobs in the offshore wind industry, which is booming in New Jersey. Offshore wind is definitely an area that we're going to see big growth in. So I'm really curious to hear what she had to tell you. Well, Diana has a very intentional mindset about bringing green jobs to all the folks in New Jersey who need them and want them. You know, it's saying if women are and, and communities of color are going to be part of this, well, how are we thinking strategically about opportunity zones? How are we thinking about where we locate or co-locate with initiatives? How are we marketing, engaging communities that have been disproportionately excluded? And I think we just, we also are tackling an existing problem. This is not a new issue. It seems like Diana really understands the problem. How is she going about trying to solve it? Well, the state is making investments in developing its clean energy workforce. And within the investments it's making, they're building in measures to prioritize equity. And Diana shared a really interesting example. We just launched, our agency launched the Global Wind Organization Safety Training Challenge. It's a $3 million grant to give an institution or a training provider to build a facility, train students in those very RFPs. We actually required and put in our rubric that applicants needed to demonstrate how they will create an inclusive program that ensures equitable access specifically for women, people of color, and low-income families. When we are asking our training providers and our educational institutions to make, not just submit, oh, here's a DEI plan, for example. It's, no, that's, this is insufficient. I, we want you to explain to us, how are you going to engage certain communities? Are you hiring a particular person to do the outreach? We want to see the weeds of how you are going to engage women and people of color. Diana and I talked about the importance of addressing the barrier of cost for people who want to gain skills and credentials for green jobs. And also, we talked about the barrier of affordable childcare, or lack thereof. Interestingly, she shared that New Jersey has formed something that is similar to what Chandra was imagining for Georgia. We actually developed what's called the Wind Institute that will be the hub for all things renewable energy in the state and act as a coordinating body, if you will, between industry, between academic institutions, training providers, unions, so to ensure that we have labor represented at the table and making sure that they, this body sort of walks us through in the right direction and is a convener and ensures that we have every cog at the table and every stakeholder. Diana thinks this investment and coordination will be really vital 
both to making the most of the state's investments, but also any that might come through the American Jobs Plan. While things might look a little bit different in her state than they do in Georgia right now, Diana's vision really echoes a lot of what Chandra shared. My dream is that we would have a stronger and fairer green economy that is inclusive of women, women of color, communities of color, low-income communities, that that green economy truly represents the diversity, the richness that New Jersey is. We are one of the most diverse states in the nation, and there's such a unique opportunity here to make that happen. And by 2030, if we play our cards right, I truly believe that we can do this, that we can accomplish that. According to Clean Jobs New Jersey 2019, New Jersey ranks ninth in renewable energy jobs in the whole country. Not too shabby. But in terms of whether all this equity spending they're doing right now is translating, well, a bit of that remains to be seen, Leah. This is a really interesting model that's developing in New Jersey. You know, one that is prioritizing union labor, that is prioritizing more diverse labor. And I think it could become a sort of template or model for other parts of the country. I think that's definitely what Diana and her colleagues are hoping. And my conversations with Diana and Chandra left me excited about the shared vision that I think so many people hold, even folks who have never met one another. But it also had me kind of grappling again with the potential as well as the limits of government for ushering in this equitable clean energy workforce revolution. And I felt like at that point, it really made sense to talk to someone who is actually living that question on the front lines of a solar business. And that, Leah, brings us back to Bob Blake and Solar Bear. Solar Bear! (laughs) Solar Bear. So Bob, as I mentioned, is a clean energy entrepreneur. He runs a solar installation startup called Solar Bear. And he named the company after this polar bear who popped into his imagination back in 2010 in the aftermath of his brother's passing. The company is indigenous-owned and based in Minnesota. And although the idea started rumbling around about a decade ago, Bob waited until 2017 before he decided to, wait for it, Leah, take the plunge. (laughs) So what was he doing in that space uh, between when he got the idea and when he actually made his vision come to life? Well, I wanted to know exactly that. How did he and Solar Bear get to the point of execution? Well, I was kind of hoping somebody was going to take care of this for me. Like, I was kind of thinking, like, eh, someone's going to come along and fix this. Obama's got it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, ah, Elon Musk is on it. You know what I mean? I just started seeing everything getting worse. You know, the years were getting hotter. You know, the the DAPL pipeline, the DAPL protest was happening. And, you know, I'm, I'm up here. I'm 
right by the yeah. Dapple protests. I, I know those guys over there in Standing Rock. Family and friends were going to Standing Rock to stand up against this pipeline company. So Bob had been following the relentlessness of the fossil fuel industry, in particular, what was happening around the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, as he mentions. And he really got activated. He started looking for work in solar and related fields in Minnesota, figuring, you know, he could learn the ins and outs of the industry that way. I applied at plenty of solar companies here. They wouldn't hire me. It's, uh, you know, it's a good old boy club. This is the institutional racism that, that's in our society. Why do all the communities with the most resources get all the opportunities? And the ones with the least amount of resources don't get those opportunities, but we get incarceration sentences. Bob eventually did find some work coordinating solar projects for a couple different local organizations. But he realized that any long-term job security was not going to be easy to achieve in this traditional clean energy space. He really had to make his own path. That's really what came down to, because I had to say to myself, am I going to do this or not? So what did he do next? Well, Bob got serious about putting together a business plan and gaining the professional skills that he needed to launch Solar Bear as a company. He participated in a program that was run through a Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI. And the CDFI Fund is an agency that sits within the Federal Treasury Department created back in 1994 to promote community development. And the business program that Bob completed was dedicated specifically to Native people like himself. That's interesting. So part of the way that Bob got his business off the ground was through federal investment, you know, the kind of federal investment we might see with the American Jobs Plan. Yeah. And Bob says that that program was pretty important in terms of teaching him how to create a business plan, how to take advantage of other incentives. He actually launched the company with the help of a loan from the U.S. Small Business Administration. Wow, I can really see how this story and experience might be very informative for what we could see going forward if Congress passes this big investment in jobs this summer. So what was the first project that SolarBear took on? It was a really meaningful project for Bob because it was in his tribal community. They put a 70-kilowatt system of rooftop solar panels on top of the Red Lake Government Center building. And the building, it's actually worth a Google. It is a long, low structure that is shaped like a giant bald eagle. So you've got these two wings forming a roof on either side of the entryway. It's quite striking. And while the project had its setbacks, Bob says the end result was very worth it. This is my where my my people have lived for centuries. And I'm building this this stuff with the community members up there. And it's so exciting. And after that first project was done, they I, the guys were coming up to me saying, "Bob, this feels so good that we're doing something for the planet and we're doing something for the community." And I had got like 10 native guys to the job site at 7 a.m. And I looked around and they were all there. And I thought to myself, I'm on to something. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, sometimes we think about solar energy or clean energy in sort of a narrow way where it's going to clean up the air and provide a lot of benefits. And that's great. But there can also be these intangible parts of these projects that are done at a community level that can bring a lot of pride to people who work on them. Totally. And this was very much a community-oriented project. And 
most of the people that collaborated on this within Red Lake Nation were part of Red Lake Nation. Bob's passion for the project has never just been about kilowatt hours or gigatons of carbon. It's always been about building something for and with his community. If you want to heal these communities with all the plants and pollution that you stuck into these communities, and you see it time and time again, you know, across the country, you know, sacrifice zones, right? Let's build those communities back up. Let's build those people back up. And, and, and let's do it with working with the environment. Let's start being at peace with this planet and, instead of being at war with it constantly. It's not going to accept it too much longer, Catherine. And I don't mean to be the bear of bad news, but we don't have a lot of time. Solar Bear says it too. He's like, we don't have a lot of time, Bob. You're, we're running out of time really quickly. Now, Solar Bear is about to wrap up an installation at the Job Training Center in Red Lake. It's a 200-kilowatt solar array, and the center is going to function in part as a place to educate Red Lake Nation members about solar and to offer skills training related to solar installation. It's all very full circle, Leah. You know, this actually reminds me of a project that I worked on a long time ago now when I was first starting out in climate and clean energy work back in 2006. Me and two friends uh, at the University of Toronto, we raised a bunch of money from sort of student fees and helped fund a 57 kilowatt array, a solar array on one of the student buildings. And one of the things we said was that we wanted the revenue from that project to go towards funding student bursaries, basically helping people afford college. And I just looked up the numbers and it seems like about $20,000 every year now goes to sort of student support. So I love these projects that have multiple benefits that are based in a community and that give back to the community. That's really the gold standard for these kinds of clean energy projects. Leah, I think Bob would really agree with you. And Solar Bear has expanded its work in some really cool ways. They've partnered with an unexpected ally, the Minnesota Department of Corrections and the Willow River Correctional Facility, to create a project that offers workforce development focused on solar to folks who are currently incarcerated. It's clear that Bob really believes that solving climate change is actually an opportunity for solving lots of other challenges that we face. The world is throwing up this big problem on all of us, but it's telling us that we can start fixing all of these little problems with this really big problem. And one of them is mass incarceration. So why don't we fight climate change with mass incarceration? Why don't we train individuals that are incarcerated in the solar industry. Why not while we're building solar systems for communities, we also build people? Bob is also the executive director of Native Sun Community Power Development. That's a nonprofit that promotes a just energy transition through educational programs and community activism. And he serves on the Minnesota Workforce Development Board, where he is also trying to push this revolution forward. 
Wow, you know, it's so inspiring to hear about Bob's work. So many people are like, what can I do on climate change? It's so big. It's so hard. And Bob's just like, I got ideas. I'm just going to do things. I love it. And he's not just doing things on climate change. He's doing things on social equity, on creating a workforce, on supporting his community. It reminds me a lot of an episode that Julian Noisecat did with us last season, Changing Woman, which looked at Wahala Johns. She had a pretty similar approach, I would say, in terms of her work on solar in the Navajo Nation. Yeah, I think they both have this very clear-eyed vision of a healed planet, but also of healed people and healed communities. And I agree, Leah. Neither Wahala nor Bob nor Solar Bear, no one is waiting for anyone else, not corporations, not politicians, to bring about the future that they know is so necessary. We need to have renewable energy. We need to have electric vehicles. We we need to transit. We need to have uh, renewable energy microgrids. We need to have tribal utilities. We need to have all these things now because this is how we're going to save the planet. You have to understand, Solar Bear started during the Trump administration. So we're not going to put a lot of stock in what the federal government is going to do or what they're not going to do. We're going to build solar and build a future that is more inclusive, more diverse. All you people out there, you have the power. You know what I mean? People have the power. That's what I want everyone to understand. These utilities are on the run because they're so scared of what's happening with the solar industry and how revolutionary this is. This is the one thing that all those corporate executives, Republicans and corporate Democrats don't get, is that we believe in what we're doing. We want to save this planet and we want to speak up and, and fight for those who can't fight for themselves. So, Leah, it feels like it's worth noting that the American Jobs Plan, which we've been focused on, is traveling along its journey through Congress in tandem with the American Families Plan. Yeah, that's right. You know, the American Families Plan is another big investment package that's going to provide really critical things to American families all across the country. Things like universal preschool, college scholarships, paid parental leave, lots of health benefits too, and a lot more. Yeah, and the American Families Plan is, I would say, getting less attention, maybe much less attention in the climate world than the American Jobs Plan is. And on the surface, that makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, we got to focus on the climate because nobody else is going to if we don't. And it's clear that the jobs plan has keywords, climate buzzwords that we like, like energy infrastructure, solar panels, wind turbines, transmission. You know, we know what all those things mean and we want them. Whoop, whoop, solutions words. Totally. But I spoke to someone who thinks maybe this is, if not a mistake, it's a little bit blinded. And her name is Christina Kwok. She's a fellow at the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution, a think tank. Her take is that when you focus too narrowly on quote unquote green jobs, you end up leaving out, well, a lot of green jobs. Because typically a green job is, you know, when you think about that, you think about wind turbines, you think about solar power, you think about, you know, uh, electrifying buses and, and that kind of thing, right? But we're not thinking about things that are equally important to ensuring the adaptive capacity and building the resilience of human society, as well as being green. 
This has been a big insight for me in doing this story with you, Catherine. You know, I am so focused on the American Jobs Plan. And with only so many dollars on the table, there can even feel like this sense of competition. But on the other hand, when I look at the American Families Plan, I see all the value and vision there, too. And when I hear Christina talk, I realize that, aha, this whole care economy thing is kind of about low-carbon work. If it were up to Christina, the climate jobs conversation would be a much bigger, broader conversation. Ultimately, she says that building a green workforce is less a conversation about jobs specifically and more about education, about learning and developing human beings. And that is something that the American Families Plan promises a lot more of. We're so focused on the short-term political timelines and we got to stop doing that and think about the marathon we're running. You know, how do we get to the long goal? If we're thinking about purely technical specific skills, we're going to miss the opportunity to really think about how do we create greener mindsets, greener lifestyles, greener worldviews that can adapt and be agile to whatever, you know, 2030 might look like if we meet our targets then, right? And then what that would look like in 2040 and 2050. Lucky for us, Christina has laid out a really robust framework for how we can rethink the way green jobs and even green skills are defined. She calls it her green learning agenda. It's critical, I think, to a build back better vision for transforming those underlying economic and social structures of inequity that are at the core of the climate crisis. And she says the first step is expanding the definition of what is a green job. The first step that we need to consider is really expanding that definition to include the social aspects of what it means to be sustainable, you know. And so we're really thinking about healthcare, thinking about childcare, thinking about education, and sort of the sectors that are really kind of responsible for ensuring that we can respond to and prepare for and adapt to climate change and, and sustainability and, the, and the, the new economy that we hope to create. So if we redefine green jobs um, by thinking about uh, in prioritizing care, that means we also need to redefine what are green skills. Because I think the danger with the present focus on certain and specific types of industries is that then the funding that will come in to support certain types of training will only focus on certain types of skills. That's a big part of what Christina wants people to understand. And she says that bringing in everyone is also going to take a bigger culture shift. So this gets at this second-pronged approach to a new green learning agenda. And that's just really ensuring that we have the educational and training opportunities to begin shifting behaviors um, towards more pro-environmental behaviors, begin shifting ways of thinking so that our overconsumption and high levels of, of you know, production that requires high energy costs, changing these aspects of our human society, right? This is one that could be achieved by countries saying we need to mandate climate change education across the curriculum and think about how to ensure concepts of climate justice and climate action are taught alongside knowledge about climate change and its causes and so on, right? So that is another very clear sort of policy entry point if we want to talk about a more adaptive approach to addressing climate change and really thinking about those long-term behavioral changes. 
So how exactly does Christina want to make this vision into reality? Well, she's got some practical ideas, and one of them is just actually bringing this redefinition of green jobs to paper. Really having, for example, the Bureau of Labor Statistics to redefine green jobs so that from the very get-go, when we're talking about how to, how to engage in a just transition to a green economy, that definition of green economy includes care work. And that then conversations later that come in around funding, training to support that just transition is also going to training of educators, training of healthcare professionals, and so on. And not just, I mean, we need it, of course, to the wind turbine technicians. We absolutely need that. But we also need that more expansive and encompassing vision of a green of green jobs if we really want to target some of the, the kinds of economic transformations that we need. You know, we've got this really unique opportunity right now with a big investment package moving through Congress that's a mashup of the American Jobs Plan, mostly focused on climate and other infrastructure investments, and the American Families Plan, focused on this care work. And I think we can start to think a little differently as a climate community and say, you know what? Both of these are absolutely critical to getting to the low-carbon future we need. You know, it's really interesting, Leah. I came into the exploration of this topic thinking about how do we foster equity and inclusion within burgeoning solar industries, wind industries, energy efficiency work, manufacturing jobs that are related to our climate future. And where I've landed after that conversation with Christina is yes and, right? We need all of that, but also we need to be properly recognizing and valuing industries that we haven't thought about as green job spaces that are predominantly employing women, predominantly employing people of color, and seeing how critical those are to a just and livable future. And how do we also make those spaces that can thrive and are properly valued for the future that we all want? Yeah, you know, when I think about the years ahead, and hopefully when we've started to really tackle the climate crisis, this workforce, this combined workforce built from the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, that feels like the workforce we need. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Leah Stokes. And me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production of Postscript Media, podcasts for a changing planet. Jamie Kaiser and Dalvin Abouaji produced the show. Stephen Lacey is our executive editor. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. Fact-checking by Emma Swanson. Thanks to our funders and supporters who make this show possible. Sunrise Project, Northlight Foundation, McKnight Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, and UC Santa Barbara. If you are digging the show, please hop onto Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating or leave a review. And come back soon as we tell more stories for the climate curious. Perfect. All right. So I guess I got to steal your thunder. That was cool. Jamie and Dalvin, y'all can just see, like, just see, like. Just see if Leah's is a good stealer of thunder or no, if Catherine's no. thunder has been better. Leah, Leah, all the thunder for everyone, you know? Yeah, okay, I love that you're thunder. like, you should end my episode. I'm like, all right, fine, if you insist. <laughs> <laughs>